Let's return together to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. We're only going to be looking at four verses this morning. Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 18 and going through verse 21. Tony, could you just turn this down just a tad, please? Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 18. So he was saying, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his own garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Is it like leaven? Or it is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. One of the mottos of the Protestant Reformation was a Latin phrase, post tenebris lux, which means after darkness, light. It's actually an apt description of all of redemptive history. There are times when it seems like the light of God in the world is dimming, like the truth is being lost, the church is dying. And then the seemingly dying embers are fanned into a roaring flame, a flame of reformation. And revival. We're sometimes encouraged by signs of progress in the church, locally and globally. There are times when we may see growth in our own lives. On the other hand, we find ourselves troubled by the spread of evil in our society and grieved by the persecution of the church. We're brokenhearted by our own struggle with sin and the backsliding we see in our brothers and sisters. And as a result of all of this, we're sometimes tempted to wonder whether the kingdom will ever really come. Jesus wants us to see beyond the specific events of our lives and even those of history. He wants us to understand the truth of the kingdom which cannot be judged by what we see in any particular snapshot of time. And he does this by means of two parables intended to help us to understand the growth of the kingdom of God. They are the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. Here in Luke, these two parables are connected to the previous passage, which we examined last week, in which Jesus performed a miracle on the Sabbath by healing a woman who was bent over, disabled for almost 20 years as the result of a disabling, crippling spirit. Verse 18 says this, He was saying, So he was saying, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? Some of your translations might have the word therefore, therefore, so. Those words are functioning in the same way. They're making the connection with what has come before. 
There was something about the miracle that Jesus had just performed that prompted him now to teach about the kingdom of God. He doesn't explain explicitly what that connection is, however. Well, perhaps he was still responding to the ruler of the synagogue who had criticized him for healing on the Sabbath. Maybe that's what was going on. In that case, Jesus told these two parables to show that despite all opposition, God's kingdom would continue to grow. Or perhaps Jesus wanted to show that this miracle was a sign of things to come. In and of itself, the woman's healing was something small. It was the personal deliverance of a solitary individual. And yet, because it is Jesus who did this, it is a foretaste of something yet to come. Something much bigger. This woman's healing was a microcosm of the devil's defeat and the glory of God's kingdom. So Jesus followed his miracle with two parables about the spread of the kingdom. Now the kingdom of God is the rule of God. The exercise of his royal authority. Jesus makes it very clear that the kingdom of God, in the sense that he's speaking about it here, was established with his coming. Jesus comes and tells those who are within his hearing that the kingdom of God has come upon them. And so the question arises in our minds, of course, if the kingdom was established when Christ came, what is all of this sin and wickedness and war that we see all around us and that we have seen for the last 2,000 years? What is a kingdom that you cannot see? Well, this is why Jesus is telling these parables. He's showing us different aspects of the kingdom so that we will not be tempted to question whether Jesus was right when he said that he had brought the kingdom. We know that he was right. So if we have confusion about the kingdom, the confusion is not resolved by saying Jesus was wrong. The kingdom, the the, the question has to be resolved, the confusion has to be resolved by reassessing our understanding of what the kingdom is and what the kingdom looks like and what we ought to expect from the kingdom. And so Jesus is showing us different aspects of the kingdom. One, we might say, is the extensive growth of the kingdom. And the other shows us the intensive growth of the kingdom. The first parable is based on an agricultural imagery. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now, mustard was the tiniest seed that farmers 
sowed in ancient Israel, Luke's description differs from the description that we find in Matthew in that Luke does not mention specifically how small the mustard seed is. But he didn't need to because everybody knew. Everybody understood that the mustard seed was proverbial, proverbially small. The parable draws a contrast then between the small size of the seed and the large size of the plant that it produces. At first, the mustard plant of the Middle East looks more or less like a bush, but it grows to a height of anywhere between 8 and 12 feet tall, so it turns into something that is more like a tree. And it is hardly what anyone would expect simply from looking at the seed. Nevertheless, the mustard bush tree has branches big enough when it comes into its fullness that birds can come and nest in it. As small as it is, the seed grows up to become a significant size. The second parable comes from the daily routine of baking bread. Again, he said, verse 20, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Like the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven starts with something that seems to be insignificant. All the woman adds to her dough is a little bit of yeast or a lump of leaven from an old batch of bread, perhaps. As it gets mixed in, the leaven quickly becomes lost in the dough. You couldn't pick the leaven back out. You couldn't see it any longer once it's mixed in. And yet, it is still there and it will still have its effect. Overnight, that dough will grow. Now, on this occasion, the woman is making a a large amount of bread. Three uh, pecks or measures is about 50 pounds of flour, enough to feed 150 people. But even a small amount of active yeast culture will cause that much dough to rise, leavening many loaves of bread. So what's Jesus getting at with these parables? The first thing we need to say is that we've got to be careful to avoid the temptation of over-interpretation. Some scholars have used these parables to defend different positions concerning the second coming of Christ. Some have seen in it a defense of post-millennialism, that idea that Christ, that Christianity will triumph in the world before the second coming. Others have used these parables to defend essentially the opposite position, that the church will become completely corrupt before Jesus comes to establish an earthly millennial kingdom. That's a lot of weight for four verses to bear. Rather, it seems wiser and safer to see what general principles these verses teach about the progress of God's kingdom work. What they teach can be summarized as follows. From a small and seemingly insignificant beginning, 
the kingdom of God grows. At times invisibly, almost imperceptibly, until it reaches all nations with its transforming power. From a small and seemingly insignificant beginning, the kingdom of God grows at times invisibly and almost imperceptibly until it reaches all nations with its transforming power. Let's look at these verses in the light of that understanding. Starting with that phrase from a small and seemingly insignificant beginning, the mustard plant started to grow with one tiny seed. The bread began to rise with just a a little bit of yeast or leaven. At the beginning, it was hard to imagine that that seed could become a tree or that 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 lump would make many, many loaves of bread. Yet, that is how the tree started It's how the bread began. So it is with the kingdom of God. Big things grow from small beginnings. In establishing his rule over his people, God began with something small. His work in the world began with one man, Adam. His covenant with the nations began with one man. Abraham. His dynasty over his people Israel began with one man, David. And the new covenant began with one man, Jesus Christ. How insignificant it all seemed at the beginning. A conception occurs in a backwater town not far from Galilee. Can anything good come from Nazareth? A child is born in poverty and relative obscurity. He grows up in his family, just like any other child, begins working in the family business. At the age of 30, he rapidly and unexpectedly rises to national prominence as an itinerant preacher and miracle worker, after which he dies a criminal's death and is buried in another man's tomb. He has a group of followers, but they're rather fickle and few in number. Most of them run away when he's arrested. Who would ever imagine that this was the seed of God's everlasting kingdom? J.C. Ryle describes Christianity as a religion which seemed at first so feeble and helpless and powerless that it could not live Its first founder was one who was poor in this world and ended his life by dying the death of a malefactor on the cross. Its first adherents were a little company whose number probably did not exceed a thousand when the Lord Jesus left the world. Its first preachers were a few fishermen and publicans who were, most of them, unlearned and ignorant men. It first started, its first starting point was a despised corner of the earth called Judea, a petty tributary province in the vast empire of Rome. Its first doctrine was eminently calculated to call forth the enmity of the natural heart. 
Christ crucified was to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Its first movements brought down on its friends persecutions from all quarters. If ever there was a religion which was a little grain of seed at its beginning, that religion was the gospel. And yet from that small and seemingly insignificant beginning, the kingdom of God grows. It grows because there is life in that seed and yeast in that leaven. It grows because it has all the power of God within it. It grows by his life-giving grace and nothing can stop it from growing. The kingdom of God grows like a tree. It grows because there's life in the seed of the gospel and in Jesus himself. There is life in the good news of his dying and rising again. And that good news brings salvation. And in salvation is the growth of the kingdom. The kingdom grows like rising dough. There are several places in scripture where yeast has a negative connotation. We're familiar with that. At the the Passover, what did the Israelites have to do? They had to sweep all of the yeast, all of the leaven out of their homes as a symbol of spiritual renewal. Similarly, the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians that a little uh, uh, of the leaven of sin is all it takes to corrupt the whole loaf, the whole church. So he says to clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Some have come to this passage in Luke 13 and tried to give a similar interpretation to the parable of the yeast. Well, I think you can probably see it's pretty obvious that here we have exactly the opposite meaning. Jesus can hardly be saying that the kingdom of God spreads the corruption of sin. Quite the contrary. He is using the image in a positive way to say that this is how the kingdom will grow, just the way the leaven causes bread to rise, that it will be, have a, a pervasive, transformative influence, just as leaven has upon dough. Just as an aside, a little hermeneutical lesson here, don't come to the scripture thinking that the scripture always uses the same imagery in the same way. We don't live like that. We don't speak like that. We don't think like that. We'll use different metaphors for different reasons to have different meanings. Scripture does the same thing. So although we we do want to recognize the different ways in which scripture does use certain metaphors, We don't want to be locked in. We want to allow whatever text we're looking at to say what that text is saying. And when we come to this text in Jesus' use of the leaven, that's what we're seeing. It's used differently in other portions of Scripture than it is here. There are times when it is hard to see that the kingdom is growing. That brings us to the next principle of the kingdom from a small and seemingly insignificant beginning the kingdom of God grows at times invisibly and almost 
imperceptibly. To some extent, this is true of the mustard seed. The first thing a farmer farmer does, of course, with his seed is to bury it under the ground. So the first stages of its growth are entirely hidden from view. Jesus used a similar image to describe death and resurrection. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says in John 12, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The secrecy of the kingdom is even more clearly taught in the second parable, however. Once the old leaven is mixed with the new dough, it's completely hidden from view. You could look at that dough all day trying to pick out the leaven. If it's been suitably mixed, you're not going to do it. Its permeating power can only be seen in the effect that it has on that dough as the dough rises. And the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like that. There are times when its growth is almost imperceptible. This was certainly true at the first coming of Christ. When the glory of his deity was concealed in his humanity. It was all the more true on the cross when the power and the beauty of his sacrifice were obscured by the ugliness of his suffering and his bloody Death. Who could see that Jesus in that moment was offering his life as an atonement for sin? So, too, the life giving work of the gospel is often unseen, yet, little by little, the kingdom grows. It grows behind closed doors when a sinner secretly kneels in prayer prayer of repentance and faith. It grows in the heart when a little boy and a little girl commits themselves to living for Jesus, no matter what. It grows in the home when, by faith, a husband takes spiritual responsibility for his household, and a wife honors and respects her husband. It grows behind bars when prisoners hear the gospel. It grows on the streets of the city when Christians show mercy to people that society has forgotten. It grows in all the lost places of the world where missionaries live out their faith day after day in obedience to Christ when they may not see any fruit at all. The real work of the kingdom of God and of the church in the world is not always obvious, but sometimes invisible and almost imperceptible, like yeast hidden in a loaf of bread. However small it begins, however imperceptibly it spreads, the kingdom keeps growing. And that's another principle of the kingdom. The kingdom of God continues to grow until it reaches the nations. The universal expansion of the kingdom of God, this extensive growth, seems to be the main point of the parable of the seed. The size of a full-grown mustard plant is out of all proportion to the size of the seed. One little seed becomes an entire tree, a tree big enough for birds to come. And make their nests in it. That image of of a tree for nesting birds goes back to the Old Testament. 
Here's a second lesson in regard to hermeneutics for you this morning. Be looking to the Old Testament. So much of the New Testament comes right out of the Old. The imagery that Jesus uses, the imagery that the apostles use so often has its origination in the Old Testament. And that's what we're seeing here. Ezekiel prophesied that God would plant his people like a tree on a high mountain and that in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. It's an image of the gospel going to the nations. The nations having a place to rest in the kingdom of God. There's a similar prophecy in Daniel where King Nebuchadnezzar dreams of birds coming to nest in a mighty tree. And in that case, the tree represented Babylon rather than Israel, but the imagery was the same. When a mighty empire sheltered and protected smaller nations, it was commonly depicted as a large tree giving refuge to little birds. Some ancient Jewish writings speak of the birds of the heavens. And when they do, they are specifically referring to Gentiles. So in the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus is talking about something more than the size of the kingdom. This is also a prophecy about the global reach of the gospel. The kingdom of God will be a tree for the refuge of all nations. And this began to find its fulfillment in the New Testament. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus told his disciples that they would be witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And Samaria, forgot that one too. Just a few days later, Peter finds himself preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, to people from all over the Roman world. And they repented and they received the gospel by faith. And when they returned back to their homes, what happened? They brought the gospel with them. Probably how the church at Rome began. Soon the apostles joined them in going out to the Gentile nations. And within a matter of decades, the apostle Paul was able to testify that he had preached the gospel from Jerusalem to what we know as modern-day Albania. From there, he would go on to Rome and he hoped to Spain, he says. Here's how... J.C. Ryle summarizes that great progress of the gospel in the first centuries of the church. He says, in spite of persecution, opposition, and violence, Christianity gradually spread and increased. Year after year, its adherents became more numerous. Year after year, idolatry withered away before it. City after city, country after country received the new faith. Church after church was formed in almost every quarter of the earth then known. Preacher after preacher rose up, and missionary after missionary came forward to fill the place of those who died. In a few hundred years, the religion of the despised Nazarene, the religion which began in the upper chamber at Jerusalem, had overrun the civilized world. And it was done without the sword. It was done by means of the gospel. 
The only sword used was the sword of the word of God. By the beginning of the third century, there were thriving churches in every province of the Roman Empire. Like birds flocking to a mighty tree, the nations were coming to Christ. From Europe, Christians carried the gospel to the Americas. And after that, to Asia, Africa, Australia, this missionary work was advanced with special boldness in the 19th century and then on into the 20th century. And now we see the kingdom of God growing in Africa and China and South America and among the immigrant peoples of the United States. Christians are going out to the last missionary frontiers, reaching unreached peoples with the gospel and carrying with them the light of Jesus Christ into those places now immersed in Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam. This is how the kingdom grows. It grows to all nations until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And all of this growth comes from one little seed of Christ's death on the cross and from the kernel of his resurrection. As the kingdom grows, it touches people with the transforming power of God. This is the last principle of growth thought taught in these two parables from a small and, ins- and, and seemingly insignificant beginning, the kingdom of God grows at times invisibly and almost imperceptibly until it reaches all nations with its transforming power. The kingdom does not leave people or nations as it finds them. It transforms. And this is its, what we might call its intensive growth. Seems to be the main point of the second parable. Once the leaven gets mixed in with the dough, it grows and it spreads until it permeates everything. The basis for comparison is not so much that the bread itself gets bigger and bigger, but the active culture of the yeast within it works its way through all the dough in order to make it rise. Even if there are 50 pounds of it. This is the way the kingdom grows. It penetrates and it permeates until its influence is pervasive. This is what happens when an individual submits to the rule of God. God is not satisfied to have part of a person's life. He wants the whole thing. So as as the Spirit does His kingdom work in a believer... His his influence spreads to every part of life, to to, to the, the mind and the body, to work and play, to worship and outreach, to family and friends. Every part of who we are is affected by the kingdom. Becoming a Christian affects everything as the good leaven of God's grace grows and grows until it fills someone's life. The kingdom rule of Jesus Christ has the same influence on the church. As people submit to God's sovereign control, his grace permeates the Christian community with that same transforming power. The gospel transforms our worship as we celebrate what God has done for us in Christ. It transforms our relationships as we are reconciled to one another. 
It transforms our ministry as we learn to depend upon the Holy Spirit to do His life-changing work instead of trying to make things happen on our own. And then as the gospel transforms the church, the church transforms the world. And this is how the kingdom grows. It's like the leaven in the loaf. The church often seems to be hidden in the world. But just because it is in the world, the church has an influence on society, advancing the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that our society will ever become holy Christian any more than we ourselves will ever be perfect in this life. We are waiting for the second coming of our Lord. Only then will we see the kingdom in its fullness, in all of its glory. Only then will God's rule be fully established over the whole of saved humanity. But even now, the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom is growing And we see it grow wherever Christ is known as king and wherever the law of God becomes the rule of human society, whether it is official in the law or not. These principles of kingdom growth help to give us the proper perspective on our own spiritual growth as well, on the progress of our own ministry on the work of the church around the world. How easy it is for us to grow discouraged by our lack of spiritual progress. No? You guys are all content with where you are? If you are, you're better off than me. We start out in the Christian life, and there is so much to learn. And then we get a little farther on in the Christian life. And we find that we cannot seem to break a particular pattern of destructive sin in our lives. When will we ever be free? Or we reach a place of spiritual stagnation and we find ourselves wondering, is this all that God has for me? How slowly the kingdom seems to grow as God does his secret work in our lives. We face the same kind of discouragement in ministry and in in missions. We have grand ambitions for the ministry God has called us to start or the place in which he has called us to serve, but reality fails to meet our expectations. Why am I not speaking to thousands this morning? That's the dream of the young preacher. Our ministry is small. Our ministry is struggling. Why is it so hard? And we wonder what impact we are having and whether we're having any impact at all. And we may well feel the same about what God is doing in the world generally. In America, the church is in decline. There's no getting around that fact. In Europe, it has all but disappeared. In Africa and South America, it seems to be growing, but it also seems to be very shallow, and we wonder whether it will last. In the Arab world, we hardly see the kingdom at all. And there are times when we are tempted to be discouraged by what seems to be 
the slow progress of the kingdom. What seems to be two step forward, one step back. Whenever we get discouraged, we need to remember how the kingdom grows. It grows from a small, seemingly insignificant beginning. Sometimes it grows secretly and almost imperceptibly, but it does grow. We need to remember this when it comes to our own spiritual progress. Even when we're just starting out in the Christian life, if we have that true seed of faith in Jesus Christ, if we know Jesus for sure, if he knows us, then his gospel work will grow in us until it fills us, until it changes us, until our lives reflect the kingdom. I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will complete it will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Even when we are struggling spiritually or seem to be stagnant, the life-transforming Spirit of God is at work in us. And we dare not be discouraged, but pursue the kingdom. We need to apply the same kind of thinking to whatever ministry God may have called us to. We may have a similar sense of discouragement about the spiritual work which we are doing for our God because of the opposition of Satan, because of the weakness of our own sin, our own flesh. Christian ministry can be discouraging. Whether we're teaching or hosting a Bible study or doing mercy ministry or evangelistic outreach, whatever the ministry, sometimes we are so discouraged and disappointed that we are tempted to give up altogether. Sometimes it's hard to see whether anything is being accomplished through us. But the truth is, even when we cannot see him at work, the Holy Spirit is still there. The Holy Spirit is at work through us to accomplish his purposes in his timing bringing people to faith in Christ growing them by grace transforming them by his power again this is what Ryle meant when he said let us learn from this parable never to despair of any work for Christ because its first beginnings are feeble and small Think of Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg church. It was intended just to get a debate going at his own university among the professors, which is why it was put up in Latin. Who would have imagined that that simple act would change the world? Think of Calvin going to Geneva and transforming an entire city simply by preaching the gospel. Think of the Haystack Revival. A handful of college students finding refuge in a thunderstorm and having a prayer meeting, since they were all there together anyway, there's nothing else to do. And that prayer meeting launched the modern missionary movement. Think of Hudson Taylor, one man, one man alone going to reach China with the gospel. 
Or think of Red Mills Baptist Church. Small church in a small corner of a small town. Church that has never been widely known. Church that has never had a famous preacher. But here we have been for 190 years this year, faithfully preaching the gospel. What has God done in this church over the course of those 190 years? How many people have heard and responded to the gospel through this small, insignificant place? How many people sitting under the ministry of the word have grown in their knowledge of the word and their love for Christ over 190 years? How many have been equipped for ministry in this place and then has had God move them on to another place in the kingdom to serve there? How many have heard the gospel and come to faith through missionaries that this church has supported What has God done through the nursing home ministry? What has God done through the Bible studies? What has God done through the lives of those who were at first angered by the truth that they heard preached in this place, only to later be grabbed by the grace of God to cherish that same truth? I've gotten letters, brothers and sisters. I think of a woman who came here from another church because that other church was having its own issues in regard to faithfulness. And she came here and she stayed for a little while. And then she began to understand what was being preached. And she left in anger. Years later, I get a letter. And she had moved somewhere else in the country, and the Lord had brought her under another ministry. And the Lord determined that was the time when she would begin to understand the truth. Because that ministry was just like ours. Upholding the glory of God and the sovereignty of God and the doctrines of grace. And she had come to love those things. And she wrote... To seek forgiveness for the way that she had responded when she was here. Are there others? There have been times when people have left in the middle of the message. Or blown by me after the service because they were angry about what they had heard. How many of those has God taken to himself at another point in time, through another ministry. What has God done through the services of this church, which are broadcast on cable? What has God done through the sermons preached in this pulpit, made available on on the internet, from which, as of last month, 77,000 of our messages have been downloaded? Kingdom work almost always starts small, and sometimes it looks like it stays that way. But like the mustard seed in the ground and the yeast in the dough, it grows by the life-giving power of God in the gospel. Perhaps today God is starting something good in your life. 
in your family, in this church. Don't be discouraged by what you can or cannot see. Trust in the promises of God. He grows his kingdom. When and where and how he sees fit. Believe in Jesus and believe in his promise for the growth of his kingdom. And one day, all of us together will see that kingdom in its fullness, in all of its glory, and we will be a part of it. Praise God. Father, thank you. We are so grateful, Father, for the encouragement of your word. We don't need to be discouraged or disappointed or or questioned because of what we see. Father, we just need to trust you. As you complete your work. As you complete your work in us and as you complete your work in the world. Do so, Father. Use us and build your kingdom so that Jesus might come quickly. It is in his name that we ask it. Amen.